Well, good morning. Thanks for uh, braving the weather. You can have two bagels on your way out if you want. We'll probably have plenty left over, but thanks for being here. We are continuing our series on In the Wild. We're looking at how God takes us on a tour of the animal kingdom. There's a writer in the Bible who's writing in his journal in the book of Psalms. He says, for me, who is God except for the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he sets me on high places. Now, does that sound particularly helpful, that you get deer feet? Like, I'm not even sure I want deer feet. But there's a very specific deer in Israel that he's referring to that you and I might think more like a mountain goat. When you think of a mountain goat, you think of what? Something that has incredible terrain, something that can walk on incredible places and difficult terrain, right? Let me show you a picture of a mountain goat, right? A mountain goat is something that can go places other people can't go because of its hooves. Now, in the Bible, there is this particular breed of deer, really, called an ibex. And the ibex looks like a deer, but it's got the feet of a mountain goat. When the writer of this journal in the Bible says, I want feet like a deer, he's saying, I want the feet of an ibex. If you look at the hoof on an ibex... They are designed in a very unique way. They have a hard outer shell, but inside it's very soft, almost rubbery and concave, which allows when you put pressure on the hooves, they literally become like suction cups that suck to the rock. And when the writer is saying, I got some rocks in my life, I got some mountains in my life, I got some challenges in my life, he's saying, I want the feet of the ibex, God. I want to be able to go in incredibly high and difficult terrain in my life. So you will be my rock. Let's see what it looks like to have a young ibex, mountain goat deer, training their very young deer goat cubs, for lack of a better word, what it's like to climb up and down mountains when you have suction cups on the end of your feet. Let's watch. Well, you hear a song like that, and you're like, man, that's right. I want to take on my mountains. I want to climb. I don't want to make it about the destination. I can move mountains. Great things can happen. And you sort of get pumped up. And and why not? Because it's so true. There's always going to be another mountain. There's always going to be another challenge. But then you start facing one of those mountains. And it goes on for a week, a month, a year, a decade, And you can't quite listen to that song enough to stay pumped up. In fact, you look at that mountain and you look to God or at least look at life and you begin to sort of look at your watch and say, how much longer? Then you start looking at the calendar. When's this going to be over? Maybe you finally get to what you thought was the the summit of the mountain. And you see there's a whole nother peak in front of you, right? And then you're thinking, wow, God, I'm not sure you care about me that you haven't moved this mountain. I'm not sure you've equipped me with what I need to climb this type of circumstance or this kind of situation. And whether you're looking at your clock or looking at a calendar, we've all been there. And Job finds himself in that place facing the worst day of his life. And he's got a mountain that's just seemingly insurmountable in front of him. And he and his friends have been debating for 30 chapters who's to blame for this mountain. Are you to blame? Were your kids to blame? Is God to blame? 
And God's going to show up to Job on his worst day ever. He's going to say, Job, you're confusing counting the days. Till this is over, till this moves, till this changes. You're confusing counting the days with being able to count on me. You can still count on me, even though my calendar and my plan and your summit and the moving of this mountain isn't on your time schedule. So, Job, I don't want you to confuse counting the days till it's over. It's okay to want something to be over. But don't exchange that with thinking you can't count on me to help you summit this thing. I read a book several years ago. It was called The Survivor's Club. It's about people who survived lion attacks and avalanches and just about any and every situation. I shared it with a friend here at Horizon who's going through cancer. He said, wow, that was so helpful. He said, one of the most helpful parts was a particular study done on those who survived POW camps. And those who survived and ultimately made it to the end were those who did not set arbitrary timetables. The ones who lost hope, the ones who died early, the ones who gave up, were those who would tell themselves with all enthusiasm, with all optimism, I know God will have me out by Thanksgiving. I just know it in my heart. I just know it. That temporary sugar high of optimism came crashing down when Thanksgiving came and they were still in POW camp. They would try it again. Well, I know he'll have me out by Christmas. I know he'll have me out by the beginning of the year. Temporary sugar high, arbitrary deadline, crashing down. The study showed that those who endured the most difficult of circumstances, for those who did not confuse arbitrary deadlines with being to win in the end, those who said, I don't know when I'm going to get out, but I'm going to survive to the end of this. I'm going to count on my faith. I'm going to count on God to give me what it takes to go through this however long it takes. They're the ones that survived. My friend who's going through cancer said, that's exactly that. I've been setting these arbitrary deadlines of what's going to happen and things I can't control. And I realize I'm just going to survive. I'm going to do my part. And ultimately, Christianity gives a unique answer because even if you die, Christianity offers the promise of defeating death. There's a real unique solution in ultimately winning, even if it's not this side of heaven. I was talking with a friend who was going through a divorce last couple of years and as I was sharing with them the same principle from the book, not setting arbitrary deadlines, they kind of had some arbitrary deadlines as what their spouse should or shouldn't do or progress they should or shouldn't be making by such and such a date. And I said, hey, nothing wrong with being honest with yourself. Nothing wrong with setting sort of expectations for each other. I said, but be careful not to presume you know exactly when God's going to change somebody. And they called me back and they said, you know, I've been thinking about that, and I've decided the deadline I'd set, I'm going to give a little bit more time to see how God might work. And sure enough, um, six months later, outside of her timetable, God had done some amazing things in her, some amazing things in him, and ultimately that was headed toward divorce, ended up coming back to reconciliation, restoration. They both found they could count on God to begin to bring changes in their life that they both needed, rather than setting an arbitrary deadline as to what should or shouldn't happen. So when you're facing your mountain, how do you count on God to go up the mountain rather than counting the days of when it's going to be over? Well, Job is going to get a time in the wild with the ibex, the deer, and the goat with God. And God's going to give him three things he can remember. Three things to remember when you're facing a mountain. And the first thing God wants us to remember, wants us to wrestle with, is remember, remember what you don't know before you assess what you do know. Remember where we were last week? 
Last week, Job thought he knew exactly what God should do or shouldn't do, and God sat him down and said, let me ask you a bunch of questions about gravity, about light, about fountains of the deep, about where the constellations came from, how lions uh, take care of the young. And Job came out of that situation going, wow, there's a lot I don't know. And often when we presume we get angry at God, we presume we know better when we should be out of a situation, how tall it should be, and when it should be to the, to the summit of the mountain. God's going to bring that same theme back here as he addresses the mountain goat slash ibex deer. And notice how often he's mentioning time in this passage. Time and when. It's all about the goat. Look what he says. He says, Job, do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear their young? If you're an expert on time and timing and when time should be over, can you even tell me the mountain goats you see all over the place? Can you tell me the time it takes before they bear young? How long are they pregnant? I don't know. How about the deer? Can you mark when the deer give birth? Can you tell me any deer around here? Can you tell me when they're going to give birth? What time of year they're going to give birth? That particular one they're going to give birth? You are an expert on time. Can you tell me just about the animal kingdom? He goes on. Can you number the months that they fulfill? Maybe not the specific day, but in general, how many months are they pregnant? I don't know. Can you tell me the time when they bear their young? And God here is again asking questions to remind Job to be humble and to assess what he doesn't know before assuming what he does. And look at all the time words here, time and when. And notice the whole context is about birth, the pain that occurs in pregnancy. He says, Job, you think there's a correlation between the time something goes on and whether or not you can love me, whether or not I love you, and whether you can count on me. He's going to show there's no correlation, even though it feels like it. In fact, did you know that elephants, when elephants go to give birth, you know how much, how long they are? It's two years pregnant. Two years! Like, oh my goodness, you're thinking, I remember that last week. Two years that mother elephant carries the young. If you're a hippo, only eight months. Hey, might want to be a hippo. Eight months, that's not too bad. How about if you're a giraffe? Giraffe, you're pregnant for 14 months. But if you're a possum, that's the way to go. Possums and gerbils, those are the ways you want to go, which is only 13 days. 13 days! Can you imagine? Now, here's the question. Does a mother possum love its young less than an elephant? Does an elephant love its child more than a hippo? Is there any correlation between the time you're in the gestation period of pregnancy and the love of a mother? And God's point is no. You are presuming that the longer I've got you in a situation, the more I must not love you. And the longer I take before I get you out of a situation of the pain of childbirth I must not love you. But Job, I want you to assess what you don't know. And you don't know how pregnancy works. You don't know how life works. You don't know perfectly how timing works. I know better than you. And the one thing I want you to remember is there's no correlation between the time something's occurring or not occurring and my love for you, whether you can count on me. He says, the second thing I want you to remember is that you're not alone when you feel alone. You're not alone when you feel alone. When, you, when you're up against a mountain, whether it's a relationship mountain, 
facing your first divorce, being single again, up against a financial challenge. You get into a business and you thought it was A and you get in there and you thought you were just going to tweak and make it better. It turns out it's a train wreck by the time you get the job. You got to sort of renovate everything. It's easy to feel alone. It's easy to feel like no one understands the pressures you're under, the challenges you're under. When your kids are rebelling and when something blows up in the middle of your life, it's easy to feel very alone. One of the things God speaks here that's so powerful is God wants us to know we're not alone when we feel alone. Look what he says. He says, Job, let's talk about the goat for a second. Did you know the goat sort of squats down and bows down when they give birth and bring forth their young? Did you know that? When they deliver, when they're going through the pain of delivery, did you know they bow down? Now, that's interesting to me because God, who's got universes to spin and atoms to hold together, says he watches goats give birth. He watches with such detail the creation of deer and goat give birth. When they are in pain, when they are in agony, when they are in difficulty, they have the attention of their heavenly Father, their Creator. He says, Job, you don't even know how a goat, how long it takes or how they give birth. I watch. I know the position they're in. I know the place they're in. I'm watching them. I am with them when they're in pain. I'm with them. And two things, Job. The pain they're in seems meaningless, but it's going to bring about a purpose, a a child. So I want you to know the pain you're in may seem meaningless. I'm working through the situation in life to bring about a purpose. I, I can't explain it to you. You can't fully see it right now, but I'm giving birth to something in your life. And number two, you're not alone. When those goats and ibex give birth way up at the top of a cliff that nobody can get to, they feel very alone in the mountains or very alone in the desert. But I am there. I am with them, walking with them. Maybe this year God wants to say that to you. You're going through pain. You feel like you're all alone. Nobody can understand what it's like to be grieving what you're grieving, wrestling with what you're wrestling with, juggling what you're juggling. God says, I am with you. You're not alone. It's so easy to presume that when we feel alone, we are alone. It's so easy to presume when God's not on our timetable that he's not with us at all. In fact, I was speaking at Miami University a couple years ago. They invited me to come speak at a class. I was taking on the problem of evil. So students were asking me questions about the problem of evil and why God allowed this to happen and how the book of Job is about a barroom bet between God and the devil and how we're all pawns in the pieces and just had great, great discussion about evil and Job in particular. And they asked me for an example how I could explain the problem of evil. I said, well, before I do that, let me introduce myself. I said, my name's Chad. I pastor a church um, in Cincinnati. I said, I don't know how many of you have heard about our church, but just last week, somebody from our church, this was a couple years ago, was in the news. And somebody from our church, actually, they found, got connected to a stranger in the community, somebody he didn't even know, took him away to a place, downtown area, pulled out a knife, and shoved it into his chest. Worse than that, for like six hours, cut him, stabbed him, ripped into him. And they're like, what kind of a church do you pastor? And just a look of horror in this classroom, about 20 students. I said, yeah. And what do you think we did with somebody like that? I said, well, the reason he was all over the news is because he's a surgeon. And this was a, a, a heart surgery. And it was, he was performing surgery and he saved somebody's life. Oh, yeah, somebody from our church, 
A stranger he didn't know took him downtown to the hospital, carved him up from here to here over multiple hours in order to do heart surgery. Oh, see how you presumed ill intent? See how you presumed must be a terrible person, must be a terrorist, must be a masochist, whatever. We are really good recorders of information as human beings. We are lousy interpreters. And often we do the same thing with God. When God puts an incision in our life, when God pulls us away, we always presume ill will. And God is saying, I want you to filter your life through my heart. You can count on me. You're not alone when you feel alone. And the timetable of what's going on in your life has nothing to do with how much I love you or care for you. Then he says, let me tell you the purpose I'm trying to give birth to, Job, in your life. I am trying to have you grow into selflessness. I want you to remember what's going on here. I want you to remember, I'm trying to grow you into selflessness so you can depart selfishness. That's ultimately why I put you through pain and why I put you through difficulty. I'm trying to grow selflessness in you, other-centeredness in you. Because when you grow selflessness, you're departing selfishness. And there's nothing like pain to show you how selfish you are. I mean, the very nature of pain, you're just solely focused on me, me, me. I want out of this. I'll do anything to medicate this. I'll do anything to get out of this. I mean, how many times have you prayed over the toilet, God, please, seriously, let me die? <laughs> I have prayed that prayer as honestly as I can be, right? Pain is just so inwardly focused. It forces you to look at your own self-pity, your own anger, your own like, you know, I'll do anything to anybody if it makes me better, right? And God says, I'm trying to use this mountain, these challenges in your life with these goats. Just the same way goats get prepared, I prepared them with these suction cup feet for what's going before them. I'm trying to prepare your feet and to grow you healthy so you can take on whatever mountain is before you in your life now and in the future. He says, I do it in two ways. If you look at these mother goats and how they train their baby goats, the first thing you're going to see is they feed them grain. The reason they're healthy is they're Young ones are healthy because they grow strong with grain. So that they can take on these mountains and jump down these things. You know, an ibex can jump 12 feet at a time, even 6 feet up without any running start. Amazing amount of strength. Because like this mountain before you and the life before you is filled with a lot of rugged mountains. And I'm trying to grow you strong with grain. And I think the analogy here that God is using is that most of us want sugary snacks. You know, we just want to eat junk food. I certainly do. I don't want to eat my veggies. I don't want to eat my grain. And God says, the difficulty I put in your life, the challenges I put in your life, the things that are hard in your life, I'm growing you strong with the grain of adversity. In the same way your parents or you as a parent told your kids, eat your veggies, eat your veggies, eat your veggies. Don't just eat sugary snacks. Don't just pop all the time. Did you do that because you hated your kids? Because they knew what they wanted. They knew what they liked. But you knew what would make them strong to take on the mountains of life. Second, he says, the reason I want to grow you strong and put in adversity is I'm trying to keep you from returning to bad habits. He said, one of the reasons that young goats and deer train their young children is so that they will depart and not return to them. Not return to the fold. They will learn to live on their own. They'll learn to take on life themselves. They'll learn to chase, outrun the foxes themselves. In one way, you and I have certain things we return to. There's bad things we return to and good things we return to. Returnables. 
What do you return to when you face adversity? For some, it's we're in incredible pain. You return to some bad habits. You just like, I'm in so much pain, I'll do anything to get out of this pain. And you start drinking a little bit more than you should. Then you drink a lot more than you should. You take a little bit of medicine. Then you take a lot of medicine. And then you like get hooked on the medicine. You spend more than you probably should because it makes you feel happy. Because everything else in life's going poorly. At least I feel good when I shop. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's overspending. Maybe it's watching too much TV. But there are things you return to rather than God. It's the things you, hold, you, you hang your hat on and say, you know what, this is the thing that brings me peace. This is the thing that brings me relief. This is the thing that makes me feel good when life doesn't make me feel good. But then there's good things that we lean on who also can't sustain the weight of your soul. So, you know, everything else is falling apart, but I'm, I'm really am a nice person. At least I am a good dad. At least I'm a good husband. Then what happens is, you know, your spouse gets ticked off at you. You go through a time of menopause and like everything you do is wrong. You go through a time of postpartum. And suddenly you'd hung your hat on counting on the fact that you had a good marriage. And your marriage is going through a difficult time. You're like, wow, even I can't hang my hat on that returnable of, of always being a good spouse or always being, oh, my kids are rebelling. I said that my kids would never rebel because I would, I would do it right. And God begins to show you that there's good things and bad things that you try and return to to find your identity. And they can't sustain the weight of your identity. Because I want you to learn to return to me, to count on me. Because I'm the only thing that's going to be constant. Not your health, not your kids, not your marriage, not your success, not your job titles. All good things. The things you return to in your pain, but they're not going to sustain you in the mountains in life. Maybe you probably saw the interview uh, this week with Clemson sort of being all over the news for the last couple weeks from uh, the head coach, Coach Sweeney. Coach Sweeney described how the success he's had... Is because of what God taught him and grew him through adversity. If you don't know his story, his story before being the head coach and leading the team to the big win is he went to Clemson. He went to Clemson during a time that things were very, very rocky and the mountains coming in his life were horrible. His dad was an alcoholic. All the pain and chaos that brought into his life. So much so that alcoholism led to bankruptcy for the family. Splitting of the marriage. He was in college his senior year at Clemson. The place he loved and wanted to play for. Maybe even one day coach if he even dared to hope that much. But he wouldn't dare to hope that much. His mom got foreclosed on, had no place to live. So his senior year of college, he and his mom shared a one-bedroom apartment together. While everyone else was enjoying their senior year doing college things, he was living with his mom. And he said he learned how to count on God. And he said, the story of my life is a story that could not be written by a Hollywood producer. It's so amazing. You wouldn't believe the movie if you saw it. How God took me in these circumstances, under these challenges, and led me to eventually get connected, to, to stay connected to Clemson, become the coach at Clemson, to ultimately have this incredible win. He said, you know, I have just been filled with joy in my life. Because I've won, this, this success has been incredible. It's something that people long for, but I give credit to God. And though this is a great thing, I don't hang my hat on my career. I don't hang my hat on our big win. I hang the hat on a God who's with me in the bad times and the good times. It's the one thing I could always count on. What's he saying? He's saying, God gave me feet for my path, not path for my feet. See, many of us 
our feet have got kind of soft because we don't like adversity. We've designed our lives about being comfortable, haven't we? And why not? But with that, we don't have the calluses needed to walk up mountains and down mountains. And because we're soft and because we don't have fortitude and because we don't have perseverance, we pray prayers like this. God, I've got soft feet, so give me a path for my feet. Make it smooth and soft and easy and comfortable. And God rarely answers that prayer. I wish he did, actually. God says, I'm not going to give you a path for your feet. Instead, I'm going to give you feet for the path. And there's going to be rugged paths and difficult paths and challenging paths and uphill paths and downhill paths. And you're going to need the kind of feet that can endure that. And you don't have those feet right now. And I want to grow you like I did the ibex, like I do the, go- the goat, like I do the deer. I'm going to be with you during the pain of childbirth. I'm going to bring purpose into your life. I'm going to grow you, keep you from returning to bad habits. But I want you to have feet for your path. There's this dam in Italy. This dam is just massive. Like a typical dam holding back just tons and tons of water. If you look at that dam, just look at that vertical plane. Look how massive and big that is. Then look carefully at the picture. Look at those little black dots. Because those aren't shadows. Those are ibex. Who have the kind of suction cupped feet that God has given them. That they can climb up a dam. And God is saying to you and I what the writer of Psalms said. I'm going to give you some feet that can suction cup your way into the most challenging of circumstances. That you don't have to fear what's before you because I am with you. You don't have fear what's before you because I've equipped you. In fact, one of the things that's been fun in our family, we've got kind of family tradition. And one of the ways in which you grow a family, right, is you start building a relationship, not when they're 18, not when they're 28. You start early on. How do I build relationships and bring fun and joy and as I mentioned last week, I'm not particularly good at cussing, so some people are good at it, I'm not. But uh, my kids are used to the fact that I don't swear. My dad was pretty strong on never swearing, so we didn't. And one day we're driving from here to Indiana to visit Grandma and Grandpa, and as we're driving by, if you're on 74, you'll know there's this gigantic dam right over there um, between here and Indianapolis, or maybe just past Indianapolis. So we're driving by, the kids are on their gaming systems, they're walking along, and all of a sudden as we're driving along in the silence of the car, I, I turn, I'm like, Damn! They all look up like, what? Dad's, dad's cussing. I'm like, no, I was just talking about a dam. Dad, really, Dad? Really? It's the worst dad joke ever. So my, my daughter ends up going to college at College of the Ozark in Missouri. And the college is right next to this giant dam. So as we're driving ba- by, I'm like, same thing. They're all looking down. Dam! What? There's a dam right there. And I said, Sierra, hey, everybody pull out your pictures. Let's take some damn pictures. And so we're taking some damn pictures. And I said, look at the damn tree on the dam. And, and, and look at the damn people walking across the dam. And so we just had the ongoing. My dad was not impressed with this joke, by the way, at all. My dad was very, very offended. And so we're, we're just as many damn jokes as we can present. And so the deal I made with my daughter while she was at college is every time you go by the dam, I want you to send me some damn pictures. And so every time she went by the dam at college, she would take a picture and text it to me. And then we actually, uh, we go... Uh, jet skiing out of East Fork Lake twice a week during the summer, and there's a giant dam there. So every time we drive by, while Sierra was in college, I would take a picture as I drove over the dam and send her some damn pictures. And so this kind of came to still fun thing for us as a family to keep track of each other and to remind each other we're thinking of each other. 
Well, I've been learning how to fly a little bit in the last couple of years, and I haven't been flying over East Fork Lake. So as I'm flying over, I turn to my instructor. I'm like, Phil, 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 what? Take a picture of the dam. Why? Because I need to send my daughter some damn pictures. What? <laughs> I tell the whole story to him. And, and it was amazing, this kind of, even though my dad, again, didn't appreciate the joke. Um, just this fun of just stories and traditions we had and the relationship I have with my 22-year-old and my 19-year-old and, and my, my nine-and-a-half-year-old. It didn't just start like when they were that age. It was jokes and traditions and investment and time and listening and, and admitting when I was wrong. And it was those things that were not a perfect family by any stretch, any stretch. But building, God putting into our life the kind of feet that can endure the paths that be before us. That's what God wants for us. Because God wants us to discover that there's a big difference between counting the days and counting on him. And God says, instead of counting on him to make changes and praying all your prayers toward that, instead of counting on God to make changes, instead, count on him to make changes in you. God, give me the feet I need for this. Give me the preparation I need for this. Then I can come against the mountains that are before me. What if you change your perspective for the next week or month and just said that to God? God, instead of counting on you to move a mountain that you may or may not move, I'm going to count on you to make changes in me so I can go up that mountain. How might that change your perspective? Now, you can still pray that it changes, but God, until it changes, I'm going to count on you to make changes in me until it changes. Here's one of the things that's going to do for you. You're going to suddenly be in control of something you're actually in control of. <laughs> you can't control people and circumstances, but you can control how you react to people and circumstances. And that's going to bring hope. It's going to be controlled back to you. Because the Bible sort of crescendo of the Bible is that God says he doesn't sort of watch from a distance to see our pain. God entered into our pain through the person of Jesus. God became a man. And as he became a man, he could have endured an easy life, but instead he faced betrayal. He had a cousin that got brutally killed in a terrorist act where he gets his head chopped off. He came face to face with friends who disbanded and left him. And then he had to climb his own mountain. And that mountain was called Golgotha. The place of the skull. The Bible says at any time, he's even tempted. Hey, you can get out of this at any moment. Call down your angels. They'll pull you out of this. He's even praying. He's about to go up that mountain. He's like, God, please take this cup from me. Please remove this mountain from me. But not my will. Yours be done. Be with me. And he climbed that mountain of Golgotha. At any time he could have escaped, at any moment he could have backed down, but he climbed that mountain for us. And he stayed on that mountain, allowed himself to be stabbed, beard yanked out, crown of thorns placed on his head, nails pounded into his wrists and into his feet. But none of that was the mountain. It was bad, but people got killed on crucifixion, a thousand a day in Rome. The real mountain, as he allowed himself to take on the full consequence of all the wrongdoing of you and I. Every little thing you've ever done got poured out on him. And the real mountain was the moment that he heard his father, who he'd been in fellowship with or friendship with or in connection with for eternity, turn his back on him and say, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His mountain is he allowed God to forsake him so that God would never forsake you and I. That God turned his back on all the wrongdoing on that mountain that day. 
So one, we could see the kind of fortitude our Father had for us, what he's willing to do to fight for us. Two, that he doesn't watch from a distance and his life is comfortable. He entered the fray. He entered the difficulty. And by going up that mountain, he came back down out of that mountain, was put in a grave, and came out of that valley, resurrected himself, and proved that there is purpose to the meaningless suffering of a cross so that you and I can know there's a God who gives us hope and strength and purpose. So whether you're going up a mountain or down a mountain, there's a God who wants to be with you and give you the feet you need for the path. Let's listen together. Well, let's pray together. And I don't know if you're facing a downhill mountain that sounded great or a tough mountain up, but let's just pray together. Maybe you want to pray that prayer that I read at the beginning. God, give me the feet of the ibex. God, remind me that you are with me when I feel alone. Equip me. Build into me. Give me hope, real hope, not false hope, that I will win in the end because I can count on you. Father, we're so thankful that you give us promises we face adversity. You tell us to be strong and courageous for you are with us. To be strong and very courageous for you never leave us nor forsake us. That just as you've been with those who've had faith before us, you will be with us now. That every place our foot steps, you will give it to us as we're walking in your ways, meditating on your word day and night, not turning to the left or to the right, Father. Teach us how to walk the path before us with joy and purpose, knowing that what seems meaningless, you will bring meaning from. For you work all things together for good to those who love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for being here today as we looked at the ibex and the goat. Join us next week as yet another animal in our In the Wild series. And again, the kids and student program are following along, so you can have great discussions in the, uh, the car, hopefully ride home, on what these animals mean and what it means for your family's life. Thanks so much. We'll see you all next week.